You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello and welcome to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan and I'm here with one of my co-hosts, Rob. Hello. And tonight we have a very special guest with us, Mr. Tony Fletcher, author of a number of books, an autobiography, a novel. He's a podcaster, all sorts of things. So I'm really looking forward to diving in and having a chat with Mr. Fletcher. Tony, how are you tonight? I'm good, thank you, uh, Adam and Rob. Nice to see you again. It's great to see you. Yeah, it's been way too long. It's a pleasure to have you join us, and I'm really thankful that you've taken time out of your schedule to have a chat with us. Cool. I'm I'm game. <clears throat> my normal my normal <laughs> thinking on something like this is it keeps me out of trouble for an evening. You know, like uh, it's it's as good to stay at home and chat about music as to go out and chat about music. So, <laughs> what trouble would you get into if you weren't here podcasting with us? I would probably have to follow my son's uh, determined uh, order that I catch up on Stranger Things so that we can watch uh, the new series. And I don't really love watching it on my own. So that would be some trouble. I would have less excuse not to watch that. Otherwise, to be honest, nothing. uh, I don't (laughs) think it would be too major, but it's... uh, if I'm going to be hanging indoors of an evening, then yeah, actually, I, to be honest, I would probably be practicing guitar. <laughs> a worthy pursuit. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess, you know, uh, Tony, you were busy when I first met you. And now, like, as you get older, you're even more busy. And I, I, I'm still amazed all these years later, just how busy you are. So you've got the podcast. You've got the Dear Boys, which is your your band now. Um, are you working on a new book? Uh, yeah, well, I just <laughs> it's it's really funny, Rob. I don't actually even feel <laughs> that busy, but I don't mean to make that sound like over uh, overachieving. I do get a little restless if I don't have a uh, project right in front of mm-hmm. me. Is the, is the truth? Oh, we um, get it. Yeah, the the book I have just finished a book and it's going through that whole agenting process right now. It is a sequel to uh, what uh, Alan c- called the autobiography. I'd, I'd probably call it a memoir in the sense it's about a particular period of 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 life and invited a sequel because it actually ended at the age of sixteen. Mm-hmm. And that book um, took me a while to complete, but I completed it a couple of months back, <clears throat> and. Um, it's just been doing the rounds. I am uh, very, very happy with it. I am uh, can't wait till I can announce, you know, when and it's being published and and who with. And there's going to be more work to do on that. Uh, books probably much like bands with albums. You're working on them until the day that they go to print. And I'm probably about ready to <clears throat> take a good look through this book again. It's called Teenage Blue, and um, that's my latest book project and I would be keen to get stuck into another um, uh, non-fiction rock book, meaning meaning like a sort of biographical book. It's really about finding the right subject and uh, every, every book I've written I'm proud of and the problem that you can run up against is the the ideas I might have for a great book might not be every publisher's idea of a mm-hmm. best-selling book. I'm kind of more interested sometimes in the things that don't sell. Um, <laughs> and some of the things that do sell either feel like they've been done into the ground um, or they might just not be right for me. But there will be another, I'm sure there'll be another big music book coming up soon as well. Yeah, having written about uh, Wilson Pickett and Keith Moon and R.E.M. and The Smiths and The Clash and we could go on. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, a lot of different prolific people, and also the I Jamming book, which is the new um, book with, with, that's uh, has to do with your fanzine. Um, I'm curious, how do you pick your subjects to write about? So, 
It's really quite interesting because in a couple of cases, they actually got suggested to me and um, it was like, uh, I mean, the, the best example there would be where after I'd done the Echo and the Bunnymen book, um, Omnibus, so that was my first book. That was my first book way back in 86. And it wasn't... Uh, it, it was an official book done with the band. I did a lot of interviews. I, I actually reread much of it while writing Teenage Blue because the Bunny Men feature in it, and I was pretty happy with it at the time. It felt like it was a little bit of a of a uh, thirty forty thousand words, I think, and, and maybe a bit of a photo, you know, photo heavy. And uh, an example would be: I was a massive REM fan from. Murmur coming out in the UK. So uh, yeah, I'm not as early as 1980, 81, but in Britain, 83. And I really didn't think they had the following in the UK to suggest doing a book. And I just moved to the States. And I think I came back over, had lunch with a couple of the guys from Omnibus. And they said, hey, we've got an idea. Um, we think we could get away with, you know, we think there's a good enough market in Britain to do an REM book. Uh, and I was like, really? Then absolutely let's go for it but i hadn't thought to suggest it to them um they suggested it to me so sometimes it comes that way something like keith moon had just been on my mind for ever me meaning really from the age of like 14 probably when he died to the age of 31 when i pitched the book and i probably spent much of that time quite rightly thinking there's no way I can write this book. Um, right. There's no way I'm in a position to tell his story. And I think I, having published two books by that point, the Bunny Men and REM books, I, I kind of just got to thinking, well, if I don't have the wherewithals and the background to tell his story, maybe nobody else does. And maybe I'm meant to be writing this book. So they are, that, 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 that's actually, two books in a row to give you two very, very different scenarios. One was this idea that had been inside me for a long, long time. And one that I hadn't thought to suggest because I didn't think there'd be the market. And it turns out there was absolutely the market for it. And I was thrilled to do it. And uh, your new, your latest book is I jamming, which is a collection of some of your stuff from your fanzines. Can you talk a little bit about eye jamming? Because you were uh, an ambitious little uh, teenager there with that scene. Yeah. So actually, um, I know why you're calling it eye jamming because when I set up the website, it's jamming. Ago, yeah, it's jamming. I, yeah. Uh, jamming was taken, so I just put an eye for internet. You know, like yeah, like the iPad and the iPod and all the rest of it, yeah. the iPhone. Um, it was called jamming, and. It was a fancy I started at school, and I always say it was I, I didn't start. I, I People hone in on the fact I started it when I was 13, 14, and I did. But it was more that I started it because I went to school in London in 1977. I, I was at secondary school in London at the age of 13 in 1977. And that just put me in the right time at the right place. Um, a couple of years older... I might have been going to the actual original punk gigs. I might have missed it completely by that point because I grew up in a bit of a classical family and I had to, um, actually a very classical family, and I had to sort of rewire myself to accepting the punk basics. Fortunately, I was enough of a Who fan that I got it. I got most of what it was all about. Um, I started the fanzine at school and I just found that I liked doing it. I... When we had done a few issues at school, I wanted to take it to the next step. I, my original classmate partner dropped off at that point. I recruited another classmate partner who I also formed a band with and kind of went for it with the fanzine and the fanzine grew. And you just, you don't really know at the time that you're doing something this special. Um, when I look back on it now, I realize, oh, yeah, I did work incredibly hard on this and and obviously, you know, it was it 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 deserved to do well and it and it was a special fanzine at the time. I was just doing what seemed like enormous fun what I wanted to do with my life. And years down the line, so the fanzine grew and it probably had a really purple patch at the very start of the 80s where it was like the top 
one of the very, very top fanzines, if not the top fanzine. Unfortunately, we didn't publish enough during that time because I ended up doing something else as well. But we, um, it, it went commercial and became a, a, a bi-monthly and then a monthly. Eventually, uh, outgrew itself, outgrew it, yeah, ran before it could walk far enough, outgrew its ability to stay on top of things, mostly mostly outgrew its ability to make ends meet. And it bit the dust in at the very, very start of 1986. And just all these years down the line, uh, Omnibus, the same publishers that um, took a punt on me with my Echo and the Bunnymen book in 1986, were up for doing a compendium of the fanzine. So we brought that out at the end of last year, early this year. It's called The Best of Jamming, Selections and Stories from the Fanzine That Grew Up, 1977 to 86. And as much as there are reprints in there of the original fanzine layouts, what I really enjoyed about it, that would have been the easy way to do it. It's kind of all that was originally commissioned, but I got quite a lot of people who'd been part of the jamming journey, uh, contributors, photographers, but also musicians who had been close to us to write their own little memories. So Mike Peters of The Alarm, Mike Scott wrote something, my friend Guy Pratt, who went through all kinds of bands and ended up in the world of Pink Floyd, um, Bedders from Madness. And then um, uh, Billy Bragg was kind enough to write the foreword, which is wonderful. So to me, that's a, a lovely, um, I'd wanted to do have, have the idea of doing that book for a long time. And it was really, really nice to do it. It, it. it felt like doing the fanzine again. I was dealing with a lot of the same people. The copy was still late. Some of them handed it in perfectly. Some of them it needed to be rewritten and retyped. And um, it was so, it was lovely. It was lovely dealing with some of the same people. And it reminded me of all the, the headaches, the hassle, and I'm trying to think of another word begins with H, the happiness of putting together a publication that relies on a lot of other people for it to kind of come through on deadline. So I'm, I'm really curious to know uh, about Billy Bragg. What was his uh, relationship to the fanzine at the time? Was he a reader? Was he somebody that you interviewed at the time? So what was his awareness of it as it was being published? Sure. He was really an artist who was featured in jamming. He, uh, so, so, I mean, interestingly, he had a band called Riff Raff that my band, Apocalypse, played with, uh, I think, twice at a pub that was mainly a mod revival pub inside a shopping center in Shepherd's Bush. Um, so we had this, like, one-off kind of connection that went way back. But after he came out of the army and became, like, Billy Bragg, he was really perfect for jamming. He was, like, we were... We were punky, he was punky. We were political, he was political. We wanted to have a sense of humor, he had a sense of humor. He was very much a press darling. And I think to our credit, and, and this is one I'll, 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 I will take the um, responsibility for, he was getting so much press in 1983 into 1984 that I thought we can't just interview him. So I had him write the Billy Bragg Guide to Being Hip. And it was like the hippest thing we could have done. And we reprinted that in full in this, in this book. And it's wonderful because it's sort of self-effacing. It's funny. He talks about the need to, uh, he's, uh, I think he says something about the, the hip clothing in the winter of 83, 84 is going to be a coat. Everybody tells you it is better to, uh, it's something like it's, it's better to be warm than to have hypothermia, you know, than to be hip. It's better to be better not to have hypothermia to be than to be hip. I should probably have it in front of me to quote it. And we went back and put him on the cover actually later that year. And he was um I, I ended up like getting to know him quite well. And I think I just was willing to reach out to him. I've had one or two points of contact with him over the years. And I think I was willing to reach out to him and say, Billy, you know, do you feel like you'd be willing to write this introduction? And I'm very, very grateful that he did. I'm really grateful that he did. It was very, very, very nice of him to do so. That's a really cool story. So can you talk about interviewing Paul McCartney? Yes, I can. Because, A, you don't forget it. Um, B, it's in the book. And C... It's one of the fun part of the book, too, yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's going to be another fun part of Teenage Blue because Teenage Blue, uh, this sequel, this memoir sequel, covers some of that jamming period, um, actually not all of it, and it covers a lot else that's going on as well, and it's a very, very, very different book. But funnily enough, I read my chapter today about the McCartney interview, about how it came about, how he was with me, um, the some of the key questions and answers. I, and you know, obviously at this point, McCartney has turned 80, everybody is just in awe. He headlined Glastonbury like all of, what, 10 days ago. Um, it's all, I mean, I know it's not like Lennon didn't exist, but for a moment here, it's almost like, you know, Paul McCartney is everything. And he was no less of a Beatle celebrity god when I met him in very early 1982. Um, but he, uh, he was as famous as it gets. It's, it, it's funny though. He wasn't, he was on a somewhat different level that I don't know that he, had the same respect with the kids that he seems to have now. Um, maybe just because he was in a sort of middle-aged solo music kind of period. And that was a great fun part of the interview because I was so young and full of spunk that I was willing to tell him that I didn't like some of his, you know, recent solo music. And we had a really good discussion. <laughs> about it. I don't think he was used to people saying that. I <laughs> I actually said to him something about how, well, I love everything about the Beatles. When I put it on, I think this is just the best thing ever. But when I play your music, it's, it's, and he finished the sentence for me and said, not as good, you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, well, maybe it's, maybe it's the music that's made for older people. And he said, well, yeah, there's probably some truth to that. And maybe when you get a bit older, you might appreciate some of it. A little bit more mm. um and he uh he actually said at that point that you know i'll be first to admit it's not as good as the beatles but the beatles were the beatles and his attitude was always this is what i do i write songs i make you know i make records and uh, he said, I think it's E for effort. That's how he described it for himself. E for effort. Uh, <laughs> the interview came about because he was recording the Tug of War album in the same studio as the jam were finishing off the gift. And I was running a record label with Paul Weller at the time. And so um, I was spending quite a lot of time just stopping in the studio. And I went in one day and I mean, I was sort of hanging out. I was always trying to speak to Paul about our label. So I had to do a lot of hanging out. It was, um, it, yeah, it was just part of what I had to do. It wasn't just ligging. It was, it was sort of like waiting for the chance to talk to him. And uh, I guess they were listening to a mix back and this person walks in uh, who I didn't recognize, but he looked familiar and he seemed very comfortable in the studio. He looked about 40 ish, which for me was quite old. He looked like he didn't need, in, he didn't need to ask permission for anything and sort of walked up to Paul and Weller and nodded along and afterwards said, Oh, you know, I like, I shouldn't do a Liverpool accent. Is I like that. It's got, it's got a good groove. And, uh, he chatted for a minute and left the room and I, I turned to Paul Weller and said, was that who I thought it was? Yes, but yeah, it's Mako. He's recording next door and he's, he keeps coming in and hanging out with us. And we're like, you know, Weller was old enough, just old enough to be a Beatles fan for, you know, of that generation, albeit like he was born in 59, Weller. And uh, when McCartney came back in, I, I said to Paul, oh my God, wouldn't it be great if he'd do an interview for jamming? And uh, that was my mind working. And Paul said, yeah, yeah, you should ask him. I'm sure he'll say yes. So <laughs> he walks back in and I was about to ask him and Weller asked him for me. He was like, oh, yeah, Paul, would you do an interview for my mate's fancy? And uh, McCartney looks at me and I'm, I'm like sat on a sofa somewhere. So <laughs> and he's like, yeah, well, what's it called? Do you have a copy? And I never went anywhere without a copy of my fancy on me and brought it out, showed him it. And he said, uh, yeah, cool. What are you doing tomorrow? Wow. Yeah, I know. I know. Wow. 
That's just have a McCartney interview fall in your lap. That's amazing. And here's the other thing. It was the first in-depth interview he'd done um, since John Lennon had been shot. Mm. Uh, it was about 15 months later, which nowadays in the big scheme of things might not actually feel like a long time. It felt like he'd taken a long silence. He was just starting to do the interviews again for Tug of War. He was mm-hmm. getting close to finishing it off. And um, other interviews would have come out before I was able to get that, that next issue of jamming out. But his behavior during the interview was uh, very much of the kind that you hear about him now. He we sat in a side room. There were no PRs, no management, no nothing. He sat alongside me on the sofa. He would like tap my leg to emphasize something. Um, he was very good at complimenting me. I was like, you know how to do this. He's, he, uh, he, would, he would say, you know, a bit like you, or you know, somebody looked a little like you, and he's like trying to make me feel very much part of the storytelling. And he gave me about two and a half hours of his time as well. Wow. Almost, almost close to three, three hours, yeah. That's amazing. That's, yeah. Yeah. I, I look back, obviously, obviously it's pretty stunning. Um, um, the, the interview was m- most of what we recorded made it onto the pages of Jamming, albeit with a classic Jamming layout where it's quite hard to read. Um, because of the, 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 the layout underneath it, but it's all there in the book, um, mm. all eight or nine pages mm-hmm. of Jamie. It's kind of would have been like 16 pages or so of regular type. Um, I have the manuscript somewhere, and I actually still have the cassette tapes, and I listened back while doing the jamming book. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was lovely to listen back on. There's a bit of a nasty hiss or a whir going through much of it, so if it was ever to be released it would need some cleaning up but it exists wow that's, that's awesome. amazing <laughs> all right we're well, done see you later no, <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, no that's I, the best story ever we can't really beat that that's yeah i know there aren't um i mean the beautiful thing about that was i hadn't anticipated or expected there were people that i really wanted to interview in my life i mean i had already interviewed pete townsend and I did that at 14, and that was a major goal. I mean, at 14, I was not capable of interviewing Pete Townsend. Uh, but I do think there's something to being, you know, when you're not a member of the music press, I think people tend to be very open and honest with you. And I think that when musicians, hopefully it's true of other people, I doubt it of politicians, but hopefully like other kinds of artists, when they're interviewed by kids, I think they can let their guard down a little. And instead of, you know, I can imagine Pete Townsend might have said to an enemy journalist, Jesus, that question again. But uh, (laughs) they don't don't say that when you ask McCartney, you know, something about some story about, you know, uh, I mean, it could be anything from, um, meeting John Lennon to your real views on Alan Klein. He doesn't say, oh, God, I've always been asked this. He's like, yeah, you're a kid, let me tell you. And you can get quite a lot out of people like that. But I had not expected to interview McCartney. I didn't own that many Beatles records. And I, I was like, oh, my God, do I have to brush up on my Beatles history in one night? <laughs> so what did you do to prep for that interview? Other um, than just going back through the albums, what else did you do? Well, this was something I was reading about today that I, I don't mind keep, yeah, giving you this part from um, actually one of my podcasts that I did. I also I read a, I read out a version of this story. It's uh, it's a little bit edited for length. Um, I had the biography that had come out that, that Philip Norman had written called Shout, and it was a bestseller at the time. Unfortunately, I must have bought it. I think it somewhere in that whole post John Lennon getting shot. Um, What's the word? I mean, it was a cash-in of a kind. You know, everybody was mm-hmm. into the Beatles and we'd all been listening. So I speed-read that again. Um, and what I didn't tell you, but it is relevant, the interview actually got postponed for 48 hours, so it gave me time to really read the book. I went, We went in the next day, and McCartney had just gone up. I think, like, the, the evening after he'd said, what are you doing tomorrow, he'd, be, he'd gone to the BBC to do Desert Island Discs. 
and a 18-year-old tabloid photographer was on his first day of work and told to get pictures of Paul McCartney and didn't handle it very well. And uh, McCartney kind of lunged at his camera and those pictures were all over the front page of a British tabloid the next day. Mm. So he cancelled our interview and then, to his credit, still came out and met a 17-year-old kid two days later. So I read the Philip Norman book. I listened to what Beatles records I had. I... um, I just try to really think of what I would want to ask a Beatle. And um, what, one, one interesting part about it, he actually ended up really slagging off that Philip Norman book. And he called it, he said, it's shite by Norma Phillips. That's what we call it around our house. <laughs> <clears throat> and then many, many, many years down the line, didn't Philip Norman do an authorized Paul McCartney book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was really, I've been really left wondering about that because he did not have a nice word to say about Philip Norman. And when I've, that book appeared out of the blue a few years back, I was like, really? Um, I know Barry Miles did something with him and they had been close all along, but that would, that's interesting. Somewhere Paul must have come around or been convinced to come around. Mm-hmm. Um, since we've talked a little bit about the Lenin assassination, um, I want to jump back two years prior to that because mm-hmm. I was in high school in 1978 and I'm, I'm a drummer and I was part of the high school, you know, drum line. And Keith Moon is the first sort of celebrity death that really had an impact on me that really meant something. And part of it was that a lot of the drummers that were around me who a little bit older than me were big who fans and loved Keith moon. And I saw the impact that his death had on them. So I'm kind of curious to know from you, what do you think it was that made Keith moon such a special character? What was it that, that drew people to him? Well, first, Alan, I would say it was the same for me. That was the first celebrity death that hit me. It hit me really hard. Yeah. Really hard. uh, Not least because I had met him. And he'd been lovely to me about three weeks before before his death. Oh, wow. So it hit me hard and it hit me personally. Uh, it's really, in a way, I guess, what's the best word? Reassuring to know that it hit you and your generation of friends the same way. Mm. Keith, well, yeah, what he meant, what he meant to me and why it hit me so hard, even if I leave aside having met him, because I was already like a complete who fanatic. That's why I met him. You know, I didn't, this was not meeting Paul McCartney by accident. This was sort of going to the opening of a who exhibition in the hope or going on opening day in the hope that members of the who might be there and I might get to meet them. I think Keith, we always saw Keith as, um, you know, in many ways, he was the heart and soul of The Who. All the best bands are these beautiful, just cosmic uh, sums of their parts. You know, they're, 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 they're bigger than the sum of their parts. And they always, the bands complement each other and perhaps contradict each other as well. Without Keith Moon on the drums, what would what would you ultimately have had? You'd have had an incredible, you wouldn't, the the Who couldn't have developed. And I think the fact that the Who was sort of struggling to get out of being the high numbers, struggling to become, you know, struggling to get to the next level was partly they didn't have Keith Moon. So he, there were these two parallel sides to him that were equally important. He was the, the most revolutionary drummer in rock music. That, goes without question i would i also and i spend my book arguing that he's the best drummer in rock music and i don't like hearing people who say he couldn't drum or that his drumming was all an accident and not you know nothing was planned and he didn't know what he was doing he was he had a jazz mind like a genius kind of yeah. his ability to to interpret pete townsend's words with the drums i don't think another drummer's come close but his clownish and occasionally loutish behavior, you know, the moon, the loon. I don't know about for you for you guys in, in the States, but for me, growing up in the same city as the Who, you know, of a, of a younger generation, a couple of generations on, uh, 
we were still in sort of straight jackets in Britain. You know, punk was punk was this very uh, uh, somewhat violent um, and absolutely tactile uh, protest at just the the British culture that you know everything shut down at ten thirty at night. You know, everybody was expected to work a nine to five job. Um, radio One was your only pop radio station mm. and wouldn't play new wave music. Yeah. Uh, all these things that were just, you know, you had to wear school uniforms. The teachers didn't understand you. And and you had these, these groups that had been an inspiration. But Keith Moon was just able to invert and subvert all of that. And he showed that you could be this working class boy with nothing going for you on paper. And that if you stuck two fingers up to that, you know, to, to society and you had enough to back it up, you could go on and conquer the world and rule the world. Um, because bands like The Who were ruling the world. They were the first ever, you know, rock stars as kind of conquistadors. I don't literally mean they raped and pillaged their way around the land, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, some of, them, some of them came pretty close. I don't mean some of The Who. I mean, some bands came pretty close to that. Uh, but they were, I mean, they were kind of like, you know, they were lords of the manor. They had... They were the first generation of working class people to become rich and, and, and become something more than working class. The previous generations of working class heroes had known how to stay in their place as entertainers. And these groups didn't. And Keith was emblematic of that. My one negative on all of that, once I wrote the book about him years later, is that I think too many of us, and I was certainly among them, Albeit that I was so young, I don't think I'm I'm responsible for anything that happened to him. I was 14 when he died, but I think too many of us lived vicariously through Keith's excesses. Yeah, you know, Keith. I mean, you know, Keith didn't quite die for our sins, but he's sort of. There's a lot of Who fans that didn't want to die young, but you know, they were happy to go with Keith on, and Keith needed a lot of help. And these days, he'd be more likely to get help. The irony is we may not have had a group that would make us, the music like The Who or continue to be as funny as The Who were for so long. But uh, Keith, Keith needed help, and a lot of people got a lot of their, their kicks out of watching Keith um, be crazy and at times F up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Uh there's, there's a two-part follow-up question to that. One, do you think that Keith Moon would have become Keith Moon had he hooked up with any other band than The Who? And also, you're talking about the way that he was the heart and soul and kind of the drive behind that band. And I think that you can kind of see that because once he passed, and they eventually carried on without him, you know, not to take anything away from Kenny or any of the other drummers who have worked with them, but, but I just don't think that there was that fire that they had when Keith was there. So I think you've, you've answered the second question. Um, <laughs> if, if, it was a, if it was a question, I mean, who should have broken up when he died? Uh, Pete Townsend is a contrarian to the end very strange decision to to decide to take it more ambitiously when he died. I think Led Zeppelin did the right thing when John Bonham died. I think they probably yeah. looked at the Who and said, no face dances and it's hard for us. I mean, we're not going to go out. Right. The we're, we'll, we'll leave it where it was. Thank you. Um, to the first question, part, it, I think it's partly proven um, the band – that he spent the most time in was a band called the Beachcombers. They loved mm -hmm. him. They adored him. Every m member of that band, uh, I've kind of stayed in contact with them. They, they, they knew he was too special for them. They, they knew that and they were just proud that he came through their band. Um, I, I think it's hard to imagine other London groups with Keith at the back. I mean, the one group that he could have joined, ironically, is Kenny Jones's group, the Small Faces. Mm. He probably mm -hmm. would have, I mean, in many ways, that was where he belonged because, um, you know, if, if, he's, if he was able to spin in his grave, 
he would have he would have known that the small faces keyboard player was with his ex wife because that was yeah she mm. they they got mm-hmm. together not long after she had the finally had the courage to leave Keith. He would probably be mortified to then know that the small faces drummer had taken his place in the Who. So I mean, there's the band he probably had most mm. in common with. He was actually yeah. the right height. He had the right humor. I God knows how he would have gotten on with a bunch of real, like similar crazies like him. Uh, uh, that's the only other group I could imagine him being a yeah. member of. And I think there's, there's, a, there's a pretty good what if, but the small faces didn't lack for making great music and the Who definitely needed Keith. However much he may have been a pain in the ass down the, the line, <laughs> they knew how much they needed him. I mean, I, you cannot imagine, can you imagine Tommy with any, uh, you know, I'll throw that question back out as a different question, but can you imagine Tommy with any other drummer? Right, right. Yeah, nobody, absolutely nobody right. Could have, could have met the challenge of that music the way that Keith did mm-hmm. at the age of 22. Right. Hi, I'm Joe Heath. And I'm Tony Heath. And we're the hosts of the Watchathon of Rassilon, a podcast where we're watching through all of Doctor Who. And we're just about finished with the classic series. Depending on when you hear this, we may already be done. So why not go check for yourself? And while you're there, why not go ahead and listen to every single episode of the Watchathon of Rassilon? And watch as Joe loses his last little tenuous grip on sanity. The Watchathon of Rassilon, a proud member of the ESO Network. I wanted to ask you about uh, the REM book because you had to write that and rewrite it and rewrite it. How comfortable is it for you, music writer, to sort of go back and revisit your work and update it? Is that like a process that is unpleasant? Did you like it? What's that like for you? Um, yeah, that's a that's a perfectly good question. I didn't love doing it with REM in. I, I didn't like doing it as many times as I did it. And I wish I'd probably done it the, uh, the penultimate time. I wouldn't have minded skipping. Um, Chris Charlesworth Omnibus is such a good friend. He's always very hard to say no to. Uh, the reason I was happy to do it, when we did, I, we right at the start of this interview, we were talking about, uh, they actually said, we think we could, probably get away with publishing an REM book. I mean, they were fans at Omnibus. So they did crunch the numbers and uh, advances were very, very small, but I was based in the States. And again, it wasn't too many words. And I remember that it had to get cut down a little bit. And fortunately, I held on to a copy of the original manuscript. Um, And down the line, what happened, the book came out. It did fine. It did well. It came out along with, I think, Green, the album Green, and it did fine. We were very happy. It got published in the States, but it felt a little f- flimsy. And, and what bothered me was that people weren't taking it. They didn't seem to realize I'd spoken to, like, everybody. And REM had given me their official seal of approval on condition that I didn't tell anybody I got their official seal of approval, which is <laughs> so REM. I mean, that's <laughs> REM. In a nutshell. And so it didn't come with this like stamp by REM, but it was pretty obvious they cooperated because I got to talk to everyone. Mm. And um, then REM got massive with Out of Time, the next album, like just superhumanly massive. They finally took off in the UK. And there's a bunch of other REM books came out. And quite rightly, Omnibus said, let's not, we shouldn't be left behind. Let's just update the book. You know, can you reach out to the bank? Can you reach out to Peter Buck? And so I updated it a couple of years down the line and it looked a lot better. And then I got another chance to update it. And I, this time I said to Chris, you know what? I would like to actually now revisit the layout and make it look like more of a proper book. And how about we get back in that original content I wrote? Because your days when you, when your budgets only extended to sort of 40,000 or 60,000 words, um, partly because you didn't think people would read more or, not so much that Chris didn't, but I think the owner there thought that music fans didn't have the, the, the capacity to read big rock books. Well, we had, in the meantime, we'd done the Keith Moon book, and it was 550 pages, and it sold like hotcakes. 
So now we knew people would read the longer book. So the next time I updated it, I kind of got what I want. We called it Remarks Remade because the book was originally called Remarks. So I had some fun with that title. Chris convinced me to write and update it once more that I wish I hadn't done because it was at a point they were still big in Europe, but I didn't, it didn't really love the records they were making at that point as much as I had earlier music, and they had fallen away in the States. And then, rightly enough, we did one final update after they broke up. I also wish that I had had the... Um, probably just the courage to say to Chris, it's too soon after they've broken up. Give it a year or two. I'll still be around. You'll still be around. There'll be more interest. I'm a, and and maybe, maybe I can do an even better job. The, the, the book is absolutely fine. I think right now, what I tell you, it was actually... I actually, for once took a good look at my royalty statements last time round. Um, I, I often just like assume they're all correct and you know, they're, not, they're, not, they're not big enough to, to get very worried about. <laughs> but I looked and I realized that the REM book is actually selling very well. And so this many years after their breakup, you know, people are discovering them and wanting to read about them. So in that sense, I feel great about the book because it goes from – yeah, April 5th, 1980, their first gig through the breakup. And I've spoken to like every producer, um, so many people who work with them down the line. And it feels to me like the only REM book that that spans the entire length and breadth. But mm-hmm. not something I love doing. We did an afterword for um a Keith for the Keith Moon book. Uh, rather than go back to the text, I just put in some additional info I'd found out because people, of course, had contacted me after that book came out. And a lot of people like, hey, you didn't find me. And they were saying, nope, we were about, I think for the Keith Moon book, I was using email with about one third of the people that I was tracking down. The other two thirds were done by good old, you know, generally mail and phone calls. So um, that's what we did with the Keith Moon book. Hmm. And uh, you, we've talked a little bit about this before, but the uh, I want you to talk a little bit about A Light That Never Goes Out about the Smiths hmm. book, because it still remains um, sort of the definitive book on the Smiths, and they're still relevant, and um, they're still sort of around, and there's interest in them for lots of different reasons. And I know that parts of that book were kind of complicated. Um, when I talked to you about it before. So can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Um, Again, I was a a massive Smiths fan. And of the various bands that um, I've written biographies on, and and I'll add Keith Moon, Wilson Pickett, various artists, I probably felt uh, in many ways closer to the Smiths um, Really, really a fan. There wasn't like I wasn't particularly friends with anybody, but 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 a band that I interviewed that I think jamming had been a little bit a part of their story. I mean, Morrissey had been on the cover twice. Um, I think probably more to the point, I knew so many of their um, the supporting cast. People like Jeff Travis have been very important in my life. Um, Grant Showbiz was somebody I'd known for, for many years. There was a multitude of people in there, everybody to do with Rough Trade I'd known, but there was a multitude of people I'd known. Uh, I was wary of taking it on because it felt like such heavyweight material in the mm-hmm. UK, but I was also aware that the, the only, that there, was, there were a lot of books about the Smiths, but there was, there was only one biography, which was Johnny Rogan's. Um, and Johnny was a friend of mine. Uh, he passed, sadly, a year or two ago, maybe just over a year ago, and I miss him. Um, I think, uh, I know um, I know Johnny Marr speaks very poorly of, of Johnny Rogan. I understand why. Um, I think that Johnny's book, was it was called Morrissey and Marr. It didn't even put the Smiths actually in the, the title. But I think Johnny Rogan came down very much on Morrissey's side, and I think that's where the prevailing point of view was when the Smiths broke up was it was all Johnny Marr's fault. It was the kind of like, you know, blame Yoko kind of thing. It was like Johnny Marr broke up this great band. And as time went on and we saw what Johnny got up to 
creatively versus Morrissey digging himself in ever bigger hole of of weird um of weirdness. I mean, I want to love Morrissey and I can't, you know, it's tough. It's 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 a, it's a, it's very very tough. Yeah. It's very tough. Um I knew I was taking on a heavyweight subject and I realized instantly that I had to trev, tread very very carefully. I mean, people like Jeff Travis were like, "Tony, I love you, but let me think about this." You know, I'm I'm not I'm not an automatic in to talk. There were a couple of people. There was somebody reached out to me about a year ago, only a year ago, and the book's 10, 11 years old. He was their first ever tour manager. He's written about in the, in, in the book. Um, had a torrid time with him on tour, uh, and he wouldn't talk to me for the book. And eventually, about a year ago, wrote to me and said, by the way, I love the book. It was just, no, it was too painful. I couldn't, I couldn't go digging up those, those memories. Uh, where wow. I think, yeah, it, I, there were a few people that had clearly been bitten and burned and bruised by the experience. I mean, for those who maybe just love the Smith's music and wonder what I'm getting at here, while I I I love to sort of juggle REM and the Smiths as these like the British and the American or American and British is uh to get them in the right order, you know, classic independent bands that broke the mold and there's a lot of similarities. REM was sort of best friends who took things at their own pace for 15 albums mm-hmm. Smiths packed it into four years, five years. Yeah. And, and were man and REM found their management within, you know, their, the person who still basically manages them went to college with them to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. So, so their, their number one fan was studying to be a lawyer and became a very good lawyer. Um, you know, the Smiths were managerless for most of their career. Um, because either people realized they couldn't manage them or that Morrissey would fire them. I mean, it was one or the other. And um, as as a result, so many decisions were made by so many people that weren't fully qualified to make them that a lot of people got burned, including the the people who made those decisions, you know, including Johnny. Um, I think, you know, it took Johnny, what, how many years did it take Johnny before he felt he could really set out on a solo career? And at least a de- like at least a decade because he played on like everybody's records and then yeah. mm-hmm. I think after Modest Mouse he kind of said you know I'm gonna do my own thing. Yeah, it took him all that time. I mean, he had one attempt with with the Healers in the night, maybe the nineties, but yeah. but it took him all that all that time. So that was a heavyweight uh, book to research, and it was also a heavyweight book to publish. It's the only book. Um, I mean, I. I should be so lucky. I am incredibly fortunate that my books have generally gotten good reviews, but it's the only book I've ever written that it came out in the UK and I was super excited because the publishers were like, it's getting reviewed in all the quality papers. And um, I realized, I realized that the reviewers were all these music journalists who equally had a say in the Smiths and all thought that they knew the story of the Smiths and that, (laughs) I possibly read between the lines that they're kind of like, I could have written this book. And, and uh, yeah, my answer would be, you know, why didn't you? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, cause writing a book like that, it's not easy. Uh, it's not easy to get people on board and I didn't get everybody on board, but it's not easy to get the people on board that you do get on board. It's not easy to get them to open up. It's not always easy to write. And if you want to write it well, you're, you're going to put in enough in detail and information that some people might want to challenge you on some of it. Mm-hmm. And invariably, if you write a 500, 600 page book, I guarantee, I don't care who you are, you will get one or two things slightly wrong. And mm-hmm. I also guarantee you they, are, they will be brought to public attention on the day your book comes out, because that's <laughs> just how the world works, especially now we have social media. Right. So, so I had to kind of go through that. And then, and then actually, of course, as time has gone on, Rob, I would like to, I, modesty aside, I would probably want to agree with you. I think there's only you know a couple of actual histories of the Smiths and uh, mm-hmm. mine is considerably more recent than Johnny Rogan's and did get, I think, the, the additional perspective of the years that his didn't. And I would say, yeah, it's the book to go get. And I, I think Smith's fans would say the same thing. So, but that one was a bit of a bumpy ride. It was hard. It was hard work. I'm, I'm pleased with it, but it was hard work. 
Yeah, it's still great. I just reread it about two months ago, and it's still fantastic. Great. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, can you talk a little bit about the Deer Boys? Because you're making, on top of everything else, you're making records now. Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, way, way back, I, I think I mentioned that um, one of the, 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 the guys who helped me out on jamming for a long time was my friend Jeff Carrigan. Uh, we went to school together. And I, I honestly, truly always thought I was going to be the musician. I thought I was I thought I was the person they would be writing books about. And that was all I ever wanted to do. And I lucked. I mean, I started doing a fanzine because I loved music and I was still only 13 and, and trying to put a band together. But I put that band together uh, at school the same time I started jamming with two other classmates. Um, and we could after uh, uh, we call ourselves Apocalypse for better or worse, and I maintain it was for worse. And I honestly wish we had changed our name multiple times down the line, but we stuck with it because we thought we'd always thought we'd gone too far to turn back, which is ludicrous. But <laughs> called ourselves Apocalypse, and um, and we really, really worked at it. And uh, I wrote songs. My friend Jeff wrote songs. We were very, we grew into very different people, which is not uncommon. Um, take the school uniforms off when you're about 16, 17, and you start realizing, you know, some of your differences. Um, we really worked flat out. We went from being a trio to being a five-piece. My uh, a five-piece a, a trumpet player joined us, and uh, I recruited somebody to sing my songs because I just didn't, didn't have a singing voice. I could write them. I could play guitar, could play keyboards, could play bass, couldn't, couldn't really sing. Um, and he could sing my songs, play rhythm guitar. He could back up Jeff on Jeff's songs. So we were now a five-piece. Um, Paul Weller produced our debut single, uh, at least the A-side, Teddy. Um, we were the last band ever to tour with the Jam, so we were their final ever support band at um, Brighton. Um, we did the single when we were 18, the, those of us who'd been at school. Uh, that last gig with the Jam, me and Jeff were still just 18 when the Jam broke up, and we, we'd been on the whole tour with them pretty much. And we ended up signing to EMI, which is a kiss of death. Um, <laughs> It, 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 yeah. no, it was absolutely the kiss of death. And this is part of the story that's Teenage Blue, which is, uh, it's about that dream. I mean, part of it is about that dream. It's about everything that went on with that sort of teenage dream and watching those dreams, you know, cra crash and burn. And the band broke up. It broke up when my friend Tony Page and I um, felt the band had, had become something else and we'd lost it. Uh, and I remember so well that we, oddly enough, called each other the same night of a rehearsal to tell each other we were going to quit. And it, that was like we had, we'd read each other's minds. And we stayed best friends forever after the band. I didn't know him until like a couple of years prior to the band breaking up. I was introduced to him and we, he joined my band and we became friends. We're, we're very similar and we're very different. Um, but we've never really had an argument. We hang out with each other when I'm over in the UK. He's come to see me in the States. His wife's one of you know, my best friends as well. And he's carried on doing band stuff. He's a lovable sort of punk granddad. He's, he's the kind of person everybody loves that won't, won't grow up. Um, still, got, He's got a fantastic man cave. He, he rattles around in the world of discogs. He's written two books recently called Anoraki in the UK, which are fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, actually, I should really, really plug them. I wrote the forward to the first of them. Um, basically, what he did is he's a big discogs collector, and he wrote um, – he wanted to review some of these punk new wave singles that are really obscure, like the band went nowhere – they released one single. They then all went back to their jobs being bricklayers or models. And it turns out that, you know, bands could have both. And, um, and the single is worth $150, you know, because there were only 500 copies ever made. And so he reviewed all of these records and sort of talks about their Discogs price. And um, it's such a fanzine book that he's done a second version, apparently, ed edition. And I think he's going to do a third, which is, um, oh, my God, I've forgotten the title, but it's going to be a football songs because a lot of oh, a lot, that's yeah. awesome yeah we do we know what we mean by football right yes. yeah oh yeah yeah so he's doing one. he's doing one of those next so we've always stayed friends and it's funny we actually did our first um 
video interview together last week for his local radio station. And uh, the nice thing is we each gave the other person credit for getting back in the studio together. Um, so I, I guess what happened is after all these years, I've been doing different things musically. He's carried on having his little bands and his local band. He's got a band called the Spiffing Good Eggs. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, he's in that, he's in that, that, that territory of just really good-natured, old blokes playing really fun music and covering some great songs and writing some fun, good fun songs. Um, but we knew we had a bit of unfinished business and, uh, somehow it just came out. It was like, we should do this. We should actually go back in the studio. And he had, uh, the, the right perfect location where he lives on the South coast of England. It's a high end garden shed studio. And that is actually not an oxymoron. It is really high end and it's in two adjoining garden sheds around the back of a petrol station in a crappy suburban outpost of Bexhill on sea. I mean, it's just perfect to, to do this. So I, I had a song that he'd heard um, and he wanted to do called Yes Men. And when I got over and we decided we'd rehearse with the rhythm section 10 days before the recording, so they had time to hopefully go off and think about what they were going to play. And uh, that afternoon, Tony was like, uh, so what are we going to do with this one song? And I said, I don't really know, but I guess if we had two, maybe we could release it. And I was like, what do you have? Because he'd never really written for Apocalypse. I think he was sort of in the shadow of me and Jeff writing the songs. And he pretty much went into a plastic bag and pulled out a lyric and said, well, I've got this song called Action. And he kind of picked up guitar and played it rudimentary. And I said, well, this would be great if we just sort of like do this and this and this with the song um, and just like you know, change a couple of the chords and the way they sound. And then we went off and rehearsed it that day and added it 10 days later. And what I loved about that process was the fact that we really worked on one song I demoed it. I'd send him the demos. I'd send him the lyrics. He played it to his bandmates. And then the other song, we just went, Hey, we got another song. Let's record it. <laughs> so that second song is going to come out. Um, I think it's scheduled to drop a week tomorrow and I could certainly send you it already, uh, Rob, so that you can have a heads up on it. Oh yeah. Um, let me know. Yeah. That's, that's, so that's his song. And we already, we want to, we want to, we want to do more. We are so happy with the reaction that we got. I mean, it, for us, I think it was that sort of unfinished business that you just feel like, let's get back in the studio together while we still can. Cause you, you, you know, the story, the older we get, the more likely, you know, the odds diminish of falling under a bus, you know, like if you haven't <laughs> fallen under a bus yet, that means the odds are unfortunately only going to get, get worse. So I'm so glad that we did it. And, um, I think we, we're, we're ready to do more. It means I don't want to record them remotely. Um, so it means next time I'm over, we'll probably do the same thing and go back in and maybe just do another couple of songs. That, uh, although we released them online, Tony was desperate to do a seven-inch single. I mean, he literally said, look, I'm, I'm 61 years old. I don't know if we're going to get to do this again. We're doing a seven-inch. I'll put up the cost and we'll get 50 of them hand-laved and, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly confident we're going to sell them. And we also decided we recorded the week that Russia invaded Ukraine. And, you know, we were in England, which made it a much bigger deal than the States. And I know it's not a small deal in the States, but in Europe, it was just like, holy shit, Third World War. Um, uh, it hasn't happened yet, but you never know. And we, it, the lyrics to both songs seemed oddly pertinent. They had nothing to do with it, but seemed very oddly pertinent. So half the proceeds from Yes Men are going to this charity called Razom for Ukraine. And the mm. other half uh, for his song are going to Friends of the Earth because it's more of an environmental track or a track about the environment. Nice. That's wonderful. That's awesome. <clears throat> so we're going to let you go in just a minute. I just want, and I've got so many questions that I've written down that I could ask you, but I want to sort of like wrap this up by, I'm very curious to know if anytime that you're doing one of these kind of nonfiction deep dives into an artist, it's a big time commitment. I'm really curious to know, are there some subject matters that you haven't written about that you would love to at some point, whether there's, whether you think there's a market for it or not, what are some of the things that you would, 
be passionate about getting into on that level. I, I had one idea roundly rejected, and it's quite possible my proposal wasn't good enough, but it was the story of uh, the Hammond. Oh, the Hammond. oh. And the story of Leslie Hammond, uh, sorry, his name was Lawrence Hammond, and the story of Don Leslie, um, because it's like an Apple and Microsoft of its time, and it's a fascinating story. Um, and Lawrence Hammond, by the way, invented, like, he invented 3D cinema, 3D glasses, the automatic transmission. Um, he invented, like, the electric clock. <clears throat> and he only invented the Hammond organ because he lost his patent on the electric clock. And he had a, a factory. And the Great Depression was on. And he wanted mm. to keep his workers going. He didn't want to give up his business. And he literally went, what else could I use an electric clock for? Like a this synchronous timing device. And he was tone deaf. But fortunately, he had musicians in his factory. And he, invent <laughs> he invented the Hammond organ from a purely mathematical point of view. Um, and then Don Leslie came along offering to make it sound better. And he went, you know, no, 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 you can't mess with my thing. He was also, he hated the fact that black musicians played with it and played jazz on it because it was meant to be a church organ for like, mm -hmm. you know, for waspy types. So, um, I still wonder if I just blew it with the proposal and there's a better way of writing it because every time I tell the story, it sounds great. And I think it should be a book. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Other than that, you know, I, I, I would actually really like to write more first person stuff. I, I would love, uh, honestly, and, and truly, I appreciate all the compliments you've thrown my way here. I, I, I read Bill Bryson and I'm like, I wish yeah. I could make, I wish I could make things that easy. Like, yeah. I wish I could write about the year I spent traveling with wife and child, like that effortless. I wish I could write about Hammond and Leslie as effortlessly as you wrote about Babe Ruth and Charles Lindbergh. Um, if I could, I would write a lot more books like that. And I would love to write um, one subject matter. I think I'll get to it at some point. I'm sure that somewhere down the line, I'll get to write something about um, something to do with, with running, um, whether it be first person or working with somebody. And similarly, I would really like to write. Uh, I would really like to write a good football book, and I do have yes. an idea on that. I really would. I might have to base myself back in the UK to do that properly, to do it justice. So maybe not for the next couple of years, at least. But um, I would really like to do that. Um, musically, um, I, I can't really give away ideas I've got. Of course, necessarily, necessarily in mind. I'll, I'll just give you an example of something we were talking about earlier. I see that Stuart Cosgrove, who wrote the book Detroit, which was the order? Detroit 67, Memphis 68, mm -hmm. 69. He's just written a book about um, black music and politics. And uh, he's got the, on the cover is a picture of James Brown meeting Nixon, right? Yeah, Nixon. Ooh, nice. And my, I immediately think two things. Number one, I wish I'd written that. And number two, man, that's going to be hard, a hard sell. It'll sell uh, to a certain number of like, you know, white critical rock critic kind of interested people, probably in their hundreds. And then it's really, really hard to sell. And I've yeah. got to give Stuart full credit because I think he published his trilogy. I think it was self-published and it's won prizes and he's done well. But those books I found you know, it's hard to sell those books. And I would love to write about more black music. I would love to. Um, it's not got a guaranteed audience. That's, that's the difficult part of it. Well, Tony, thank you so much for yeah. hanging out with us tonight and for taking time to talk about all this great stuff. There's so much more that we haven't even touched like yeah. your novel that came out in 2009. So yeah. maybe we'll have to have you on again. Yes, please. Yeah. I'm sorry, I kind of give long answers, but that's no, okay. No, that no, make, no, no. That makes for a good interview. <laughs> no, you're great. You got me in a good energized mood. Uh, I was just coming back from like a, a family scenario that uh, that, that just uh, I, I had to uh, rush out and get my son for something. So you got me in this like, I've got to eat, get online, 
talk to these guys. So yeah, I talked away there, but I'm glad. I'm glad. No, we had... <laughs> again, thank you, Tony. I, I thanks for doing this. I know uh, I've been driving you nuts. It's scheduled, so thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome, and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So, Tony, where can folks find more information about you? Were they to look for you? Yeah, easiest place, tonyfletcher.net. And from there, you can find everything else. One-stop one shopping. Yep. It's a great website. I've been digging through it for the past couple of days. Hey, so actually, the Dear Boys aren't on there, so now you have to have just about enough energy to type the Dear Boys into Spotify or iTunes yeah. or whatever. Or Bandcamp, or Bandcamp, which is, we're on Bandcamp. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Rob, where Thank can you. people find more about you? Um, you can find me at uh, KDHX, uh, Wednesday nights, 7 to 9 p.m. Central. Um, all the shows are streaming online for two weeks on our archive stream, so if you're busy on a Wednesday night, you can listen to it then at kdhx.org. And I've got another podcast called Earth Station Trek. It's a Star Trek podcast and a very small publishing company called Cosmic Press. You can find that at Cosmic Press, K-O-Z-M-I-C Press dot com. All right. So we will be back again very soon with another episode. Tony, once again, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, I hope you have you. a great night. Thanks, guys. And for all the folks listening, have a great week. We will talk to you very soon. Take care. Hang in there. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.